0: making their way to junior church and and or nursery let's take our Bibles if we could this morning and open them to the book of Genesis chapter 26 and as the Lord allows it we're going to try to look at verses 1 through 5 this morning The title of our message this morning is Count Your Blessings. There's actually a song about that, isn't there? Let me sing that for you briefly. No, we won't do that. But what a, what a great time of the year post Thanksgiving, pre Christmas to really take inventory of what God has given us physically and spiritually. This uh, sermon, Count Your Blessings, comes up in our verse-by-verse study through the book of Genesis. Today focused on verses 1-5 through 5 as we're looking at the second man in the chain that God raised up as the second patriarch of Israel. God, of course, began the work through the patriarch Abraham, who passed away back in chapter 25. God never leaves the earth without a witness of himself, and now, as he has said, his program continues through the child of promise, a man named Isaac. In fact, to my knowledge, only here in Genesis 26 is Isaac the central character. There have been many other references to Isaac earlier on in Genesis, but he's been sort of a tangential character to Abraham. And in chapter 27 and following, there will be more references to Isaac, but he is sort of a tangential character. Character to Jacob. Only in Genesis chapter 26, to my understanding, is Isaac the central character. And one of the things, here's a a breakdown, if you will, of chapter 26. Don't panic, we're not going to cover all of this today. But the first thing that God does with this man Isaac is he reconfirms the covenant that he made originally with Abraham in verses 1 through 5. God is building a nation. And thank God, God built this nation, the nation of Israel I'm speaking of, because without this nation, we would not have our Savior Jesus, whose birthday We are celebrating, commemorating this month. No Israel, no Jesus. No Jesus, no salvation for the world. So as we take a look at chapter 26, verses 1 through 5, where God reconfirms the covenant that he made with Abraham to Isaac, here's a fast outline that we're going to try to follow today. But notice, if you will, first of all, verse 1. The setting. Genesis chapter 26 and verse 1 says, Now there was a famine in the land besides the previous famine that had occurred in the days of Abraham. So it's sort of a familiar story. It's sort of like, as the great theologian Yogi Berra would say, it's deja vu all over again. You you read this and you say, didn't this already happen to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12? And it did. There was a famine in the land which forced Abraham out of the land of Canaan, which was later to become the land of Israel, down into Egypt. Uh, Back in Genesis 12 and verse 10, uh, it said, now there was a famine in the land, so Abraham went down to Egypt to live there for a time because the famine in the land was so severe. So virtually the identical thing happens. But Moses, the writer of the book of Genesis, wants us to understand that this was a different famine and a different time period and different characters entirely. You continue on verse 1, it continues to fill out the setting, and it says, So Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. He went essentially to the same place that Abraham sojourned in, in Genesis 20 and Genesis 21, a place called Gerar, there's where Gerar is in the land of Israel, same place place. This chart here shows you all of the happenstances, all of the occurrences in the life of Abraham. One of the things that happened in chapter 20, you can see if your eyes are good, I've got it underlined there. Abraham went to Gerar to associate, to affiliate with a man named Abimelech. And although it's the same place, the name Abimelech doesn't mean it's the same person. The name um, Abimelech is sort of like a dynastic title. It's like calling the king of Egypt Pharaoh. You know, Pharaoh wasn't his first name, he wasn't referred to as Mr. Pharaoh, for example. But it was sort of a dynastic name as power was handed from one person to the next. That name Pharaoh followed the different kings of Egypt. The same is said about this land of Gerar. There was sort of a dynasty there, and the kings were named Abimelech. Charles Ryrie in the Ryrie Study Bible says of chapter 26, verse 1, Abimelech is a dynastic title such as Pharaoh. Because this event that we're reading about here occurred 97 years later. In other words, the events of chapter 26 are a good 97 years after the events of chapter 20 and 21. The Abimelech mentioned here, Ryrie says, was probably not the same as the ruler of chapter 20. It was simply his dynastic title. And it does say something very interesting there at the end of verse 1 related to the Philistines. So Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the reason I bring this to your attention is people will say, Aha, there's an error in the Bible. Because we all know that the Philistines did not enter the land of Israel until much later. And so obviously the reference to the Philistines makes this whole issue here erroneous. I would understand the name Philistines as something that's proleptic. You say, what does that mean? Well, if you were here in Sunday school, you know exactly what proleptic means. It's something that is predictive. It is yet future. It is predicting that the Philistines would arrive in the land. Of Israel. Arnold Fruchtenbaum puts it this way this was not the same Abimelech of chapter 20 and chapter 21. Abimelech was a dynastic name for the king of Gerar and therefore was more of a title, such as Pharaoh. While the personal name would be different. Just as Pharaoh was a dynastic name for the king of Egypt, Abimelech was a dynastic name for the king of Gerar. He is mentioned as being king of the Philistines. The Philistines were not yet living at the same time, and so the term Philistines is probably used proleptically that this is the place where the Philistines later settled. So one way to understand this is sort of a proleptic, predictive prophecy. Another way to understand this is the book of Genesis is coming together through various uh, scrolls. We gave the Hebrew name for those, Toledot. Every time you see a Toledot translated, these are the generations of in the Bible... It's as if the eyewitness is now passing the scroll on to the next person in the chain and Moses would come along later in time and sort of compile the book of Genesis through these various scrolls. And it could very well be that Moses would later add that name, the Philistines. So there's different ways of handling this other than just coming right out and saying there's a mistake in the Bible. And the reason I bring these options to your attention is because we're living in a society that wants to constantly tear down the Bible. And when you watch A&E, Mysteries of the Bible, the History Channel, they'll just give you one option, the Bible has a mistake in it. They won't give you the proleptic view, you know, they won't give you the the view that maybe this was added later by a compiler like Moses. They'll just kind of drop that Christmas present, so to speak, under the tree and put doubts in your mind that the Bible has mistakes in it. And by the way, if the Bible's wrong here, how could you trust anything else it says? How can you trust it when it talks about salvation in Jesus? Don't you know the Bible is filled with errors? And so I view it as one of my jobs as a pastor-teacher here at this church to explain that there are other options on the table other than leaping to the conclusion right out of the gate that the Bible has a mistake in it. Because these shows will bring on some sort of fancy scholar with a lot of degrees after his or her name, typically a graduate of what I like to call Harvard, And they'll just sort of malign the scripture. And they won't give you the conservative viewpoint or option. And yet there are a lot of options on the table from an academic perspective other than saying, well, this is an obvious historical error. At any rate, this is where our central character, Isaac, went. He went to a place called Gerar, which later became the land of the Philistines, sort of, as you can see from the map, in the southwest um, area of the land of Israel. And he encountered this man named Abimelech, who has this dynastic title. And this all came into existence because of a famine. That setting is sort of significant, or it is significant, because God now takes this opportunity to unveil to Isaac the central character. I mean, the spotlight is on Isaac at this point. God unveils to him or reminds him of the covenant that God made with his father Abraham that we call the Abrahamic covenant. So... What follows the setting is a divine revelation. God appears, verse 2, and then the second part of verse 2, through the end of verse 5, you see the content being described. God is reminding Isaac that he is a blessed man in spite of the famine. And that's one of the great messages I would love for you to leave this place of worship with. You are blessed, in spite of the famine. Because we sort of have a famine in the land, don't we? All the economists are kind of doomsday about the American economy. Inflation is up. Gas prices is up. People are being put under a lot of financial stress. And what God wants you to understand is... Regardless of what's happening in your financial life, if you are in Christ Jesus, you are phenomenally, wildly blessed. And the problem with us is it's so easy for us to focus on the negative that we forget what we have. That's why we have entitled this sermon, Count Your Blessings. So we have the appearance of God. You see this here. In verse 2, it says, the Lord appeared to him, or Isaac in other words, and said, do not go down to Egypt. You'll notice that the Lord appeared to Isaac. That is a tremendous blessing that God gave to these patriarchs. God told Isaac's father Abraham, I will bless you. And one of those blessings is, there are at a minimum, and this paragraph explains it, and we've used this paragraph before, and I won't reread it to you, but there were seven specific times in the life of Abraham where God either appeared to Abraham or spoke directly to Abraham. And the reason God is doing this with Isaac is he wants Isaac to understand what he has. He has a covenant coming from God to the new nation, the nation of Israel. Isaac doesn't have a situation where he makes a covenant with God. It's the other way around. The covenant is coming from God to Isaac. And by the way, that's what you have as a Christian. You have right standing before God today, not because of a series of promises that you have obligated yourself to keep to make God happy. If that's how you're living your life, then eventually you're going to be disappointed because it's just a matter of time before you break your promise. The truth of the matter is there is only one promise keeper, God himself. And what you have today as a Christian is right standing before God not because of some series of promises that you made to God but rather promises that God has made to you unilaterally and unconditionally. And that becomes the foundation or the fountainhead of our relationship to God. In the Old Testament sense, this is what... God wants Isaac to understand that you are a blessed man because of these promises found in the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant, as you can see from the chart there on the screen, is the foundation or the fountainhead of God's whole program in and through Israel. And through this very special covenantal arrangement came this man, Jesus The story of the Bible is not man trying to pull himself up to God. It's God reaching down to man in the person of Jesus and asking us, commanding us to receive what he has done for us as a gift. God is not interested in what I'm going to do for him gee, God, if you give me right standing before you, here's how I'm going to live my life. God says, I'm not interested in that. What I'm interested in is you receiving by faith the provision I already made for you in the person of Jesus. You're not reaching up, I'm reaching down. And you stand and live as a Christian on this firm footing and this firm foundation because ultimately at the end of the day, there's only one promise keeper It's God himself. And this is why God now has appeared to Isaac, subsequent to the death of his father, trying to make Isaac understand this reality. It's a spoken, if not visual, um, communication. And by the way, you have communication from God too. Did you know that? It's right here in this book. God wrote to you 66 books... These 66 books are God's love letter to you. That he loves you, he wants a relationship with you, and here is how to enter into that relationship with him. I mean, what did Isaac have? Just a vision. What did Abraham have? Seven or more visions. What do you have? A love letter. 66 books describing in tremendous detail The grace of God towards us as his people. So the appearance of God is now followed by the content. And you see that in the second part of verse 2 all the way through verse 5. What did God say? Well, here's kind of a sub-outline, of, if you will, of the content that God communicated to Isaac. The first thing he does is he gives to Isaac a negative command. Tells him not to do something. The Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. In other words, Isaac was probably thinking a lot like Abraham thought back in chapter 12, where there was a famine in the land and Abraham said to himself, I'm going to get myself out of this problem by leaving the land of Israel. God never wanted Abraham to leave the land of Israel because God had given to Abraham the land of Israel. It's positionally yours regardless of your fear and the emotions that you have that I need to leave and I need to get out of here because I need to take care of myself. So many times in the midst of problems we get into this mindset that I've got to look out for number one. I've got to take care of myself. If no one is going to look out for me, i at least got to look out for myself. And we start to sort of manipulate and scheme our way out of our problems. God did not want Isaac to fall into the same set of circumstances that Abraham fell into when he left Canaan to sojourn in Egypt. So God specifically says, don't do that. This is a negative command. I want you to stay in the land. Now, what's interesting is the negative command is followed by a positive command. When God gives a negative, he's trying to protect a positive. For example, one of the commandments is don't commit adultery. Well, there's a positive behind that. God's trying to protect something. What is he trying to protect? The sanctity of marriage. One of the commands is do not commit murder. Well, there's a positive behind that negative. What is God trying to protect? The sanctity of life. And so this is a different way of looking at the commandments of God. God is not some sort of cosmic killjoy. Don't do this, don't do that. You know, always no, 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 no. Well, that's not how God is. God is very positive. And when he tells us to not do something, he's typically trying to protect and promote a positive principle in our lives. In this case, that Isaac is the inheritor of this land. So why would you leave? Even if there is a famine. So you see the positive At the end of verse 2 and into verse 3, after God says, do not go to Egypt, he says to Isaac in this revelation, stay in the land which I shall tell you. Sojourn, going down into verse 3, sojourn in this land. Why is Isaac supposed to stay in this land? Because he is the seed son. He is the future inheritor of a chunk of real estate that starts in modern-day Egypt and goes through all the way to modern-day Iraq. And you'll, you'll notice as we've been studying diligently the book of Genesis, all the other people groups, for example, Abraham's sons through Keturah, Ishmael and his descendants, the Bible has been very clear that they all settled outside the land of Israel. Not saying God didn't love them and God didn't have provision for them. He did. But you see, Isaac, you're special. You're different because of all of Abraham's sons, and Abraham had six descendants, excuse me, um, strike that, uh, eight descendants. I believe it was six through Keturah and then Ishmael. And anyway, whatever the numbers are, doesn't matter. Let's, let's just do it like this. Of all of his sons, and there was more than one, amen? There we go. Only Isaac would receive this particular blessing. Isaac, you're different. Isaac, you're special. All of the other ones settled outside of the land. So God is calling Isaac to walk consistently with his position. I mean, you're the, the beneficiary of something amazing. You should act like it. You should not run around like a you, know a little puppy with their tail between their legs. And by the way, isn't that something God is saying to us all the time? I mean, What, what are you running around for, nervous about everything? What are you running around about, about being scared of everything? Don't you know who you are? Don't you know what you're going to inherit? Don't you know that you're a child of the king? So so grow up, put your big boy pants on, and act according to your position. I mean, that seems to me to be the dominant message to the Christian throughout the New Testament. Act according to your calling. Isaac here is being told to do the same thing. Because Isaac, you are to stay in the land because you are the seed Son, And just to prove to you that you are radically, wildly blessed, let me articulate for you seven provisions that you have. You didn't earn these. You received these by grace via the Abrahamic covenant. And what are they? They start getting described about the midpoint of verse 3 into verse 4. Sojourn in this land and I will be with you. "...and bless you. For to you and to your descendants I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham." Verse 4, "...I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and will give your descendants all these lands, and by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed." Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings to see what God has done. Well, what blessings does Isaac have? Number one, he has the presence of God. You see that in verse 3, I will be with you. What are you scared of a famine for? Don't you know that I'm with you forever? The ministry of the Holy Spirit is such that we have that same promise. Because according to Jesus in John 14, verses 16 and 17, the Spirit is inside of us forever. This is not my personal opinion. This is what Jesus said would happen to the disciples when he was with them in the upper room. He said in John 14, verses 16 and 17, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you, for what? Forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him, but you know him, because he abides with you, and will be in you the Holy Spirit is going to come inside of you, and He's going to be inside of you forever. That's the presence of God. That wasn't a reality in Old Testament times. The Holy Spirit never came inside of people forever. That is a truth that is unique to our age, the age of the church. Well, how did the Holy Spirit operate In Old Testament times, it says in 1 Samuel 16, verses 13 and 14, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David. See that? Not in David. Upon David. From that day forward, and Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Old Testament, the spirit came upon people and could leave. Because here it says the spirit departed from Saul. Do you see how different it is for you and for me in the age of the church, post-day of Pentecost? That the spirit is not on you, he's in you. Paul would later say that your body is the temple of the... Holy Spirit. And by the way, how long is the Holy Spirit in you for? The moment you trust Christ as your Savior, He's inside of you forever. I mean, you can't lose God, you can't ditch God even if you want to. And sometimes we want to ditch God because He convicts us of things. But you can't ditch God. Because God is inside of us, not on us, not on a temporary basis, forever. Forever. The presence of God. Matthew 28 verse 20, Jesus said to the disciples, teaching them to follow all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. I'm with you until the gas prices get too high, then I'm out of here. That's not what the Bible says. Hebrews 13, verse 5 says, Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I abandon you. Your life today could be very, very tough. A lot of people are going through difficult times. But if you are in Christ, you have the presence of God within you forever. And that's something to be thankful for. Amen. Second thing Isaac has is God's blessing. You see that there in verse 3. I will be with you and bless you. I will bless you personally, Isaac. The blessing of God. Did you know that as a Christian right now you have the blessing of God? It's in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. In other words, the blessing has already been given. You don't have to crawl on broken glass and beg God to bless you. God has already done it the moment you trusted in the work of the Savior. Who has blessed us with 99%, whoops, doesn't say that, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I mean, Isaac got land, which is great, but your blessings are even higher than that because they're heavenly. And you'll notice that you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Oh, God, bless me, bless me, bless me. God is saying, well, what else do you want? The bank account is maxed out. And by the way, this is the proper basis for giving, financial giving. People at the end of the year typically like to give to ministries. And very, very sadly, many of them think that if they give to a ministry, then God is going to bless them. They think you give to get blessed. That's the wrong motivation for giving For a New Testament Christian, you don't give to get blessed. You already are blessed. Then why do you give? Because you are blessed. I mean, you live for Jesus because you're not trying to get blessed from Him, but you've already received immeasurable blessings. And that becomes the basis for Christian giving, Christian living, etc. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your blessings. See what God Has done. What's another blessing that is coming to Isaac here? I will be with you and I will bless you for to you and to your descendants. I will give all these lands. Plural. Very interesting that Abraham was promised land in that lighter blue area there. But God says, I'm going to bless you not just with land, Singular, but with lands, plural. Why does he say lands? Because that land, at the time God made these promises, was occupied by the Canaanites, at least 12 of them. The Jebusite, the Amorite, the Girgashite, the Hivite, the Archite, the Sinite, the Arvadite, the Out of Sight. The electric light, the mosquito bite, the termite, etc., etc., etc. I mean, what a what a incredible promise this is in a land that's already occupied by these Canaanite tribes. There's a map of the Canaanite tribes and where they settled. And God says to Isaac, "It doesn't matter if they're living here. The whole thing is yours one day." And I'm going to call it lands because they already had it parcelled up into these twelve divisions. These Canaanites are not going to be here forever. Rather, what's going to happen is this land is going to be occupied by the 12 tribes. And I'm going to give it to your seed, your children. Well, Lord, I'm glad you're going to bless my children. But keep reading here. you got to read carefully. I will give it to you. That's the singular second person pronoun. And give it to your second person pronoun plural. I'm going to give it to them, and I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give it to you, your seed, plural, and I'm also going to give it to you individually. Yeah, but pastor, didn't Isaac die and he never received this land? So God broke his word? No what this is saying is Isaac is going to be resurrected from the dead just like Abraham and he will inherit all of these promises one day the promises are not in a state of cancellation because of Isaac's death they're in a state of postponement Isaac is going to participate in the what is called the first resurrection Many of those, Daniel 12, verse 2, who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contentment. You see what's being showcased here in advance? The coming kingdom. Because Isaac never inherited in the past all of these things. And yet God cannot what? Cannot lie. In fact, Hebrews 6 verse 18 says it's impossible for God to lie. Which means (coughs) God must preserve the Jewish nation. I think He's doing a pretty good job of that. Amen. He's done that for the last 2,000 years. But that's just part of the work. He's going to bring them to faith. And not only is he going to bring them to faith, but he's going to bring back these patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, from the dead. So they can receive and inherit everything that God says they would receive. In the patriarchal promises, you see the basis or the logic for the coming kingdom. This unique time period in between the second coming and the eternal state that will last a thousand years where all of these promises will be fulfilled. And if you don't have that in your thinking, then God is a liar. God means what He says and says what He means. And there's a lot of Christian denominations who will tell you, well, you know, Jesus is reigning in our hearts. That's what's important. Well, I hope Jesus is reigning in your hearts, but that's not what is promised here. What is promised here is physical, literal, real estate, and land that Isaac, Abraham, and all of the rest will receive. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings, see what God has done. And then, if that weren't all enough, Isaac, I'm going to fulfill for you an oath that I made to your father Abraham. And you see that there at the end of verse 3. And I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. When God spoke to Abraham, he promised him eight new promises. Land, a great nation, personal blessing, a great name, I'll bless those who bless you, I'll curse those who curse you, and I will bless the whole world through you. Now, Isaac, you're the recipient of this same oath. It's, it's now transferred to you. You're the central character. And, of course, God was so serious when he made this oath that he actually put Abraham to sleep. And God alone, Genesis 15, as represented by the oven and the torch, passed through the severed animal pieces. And in the ancient Near East, when you entered into a contract, a covenant, animals were killed and arranged their parts severed body parts in two parallel rows. And the parties to the agreement passed through the animal pieces. And the parties to the agreement were saying, if I don't do what I have said I will do under the terms of the covenant, then let me be torn asunder. As these animals have been torn asunder. And what's so interesting in Genesis 15 is Abraham never passed through the animal pieces because God put him out like a light gave him a nap. And as he was slumbering away, God alone, as represented by the oven and the torch, passed through the animal pieces. In other words, the covenant doesn't rest on Abraham's shoulders. It rests totally on God's shoulders. And God says, if I don't do exactly what I said I would do under these covenantal terms, then let me be torn in half, is what God is saying. And now, Abraham, you're the benefactor. You're the benefactor of the whole thing. It never rested on your shoulders or on your performance. It rests on me. And beloved, let me just say this. Your arrival in heaven is not on your shoulders. It's on the shoulders of Jesus Christ, who said 2,000 years ago, his final words on the cross, it is finished, finished, Because you have received what He did as a gift, you're on a fast track to glory. The world of religion will tell you something very different. They'll tell you better behave. Don't smoke or chew or go with girls who do. And make sure you pay, pray, and obey. And maybe, you know, we'll have to see if the good outweighs the bad. Maybe you'll just sneak in there the truth of the matter is, that's a false doctrine. It's the spirit and philosophy and theology of religion. We're not here to talk about religion. We're here to talk about truth. You are kept by God's grace, and you'll continue to be kept by it. And you see this sort of typified in this covenant that God made with the patriarch Abraham. Abraham. None of this, um, the oath being reconfirmed, is reconfirmed through Abraham's seven other sons. It's only confirmed through Isaac. So Isaac, you're blessed. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings, see what God has done. The next blessing, this takes us into verse 4, is I will take your seed or your children and will multiply them as the stars of heaven. Verse 4, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven. How many stars are there exactly? Well, today we know they can't be numbered. God said that 2,000 years before the time of Christ. Did you know that when you go back and you study all of these ancient philosophers, they all thought they had the right count? They thought they knew how many stars there were? God knew that there would be so many stars in heaven that from the human perspective you can't even number them. And now through modern technology like the Hubble telescope and things like this, we discover that... God was right all along. I mean, who does God think he is? The creator of this universe or what? Well, he created it. He knows exactly how many stars there are. In fact, the number is so high, you can't even calculate it from human mathematics. And yet all the philosophers thought they had the right count. Genesis 15 and verse 5, this is what God said to Abraham. He took him outside and said, now look towards the heavens and count the stars. If you're able to count them, ha ha ha, good luck. God knew that they were innumerable at the beginning. It's interesting how the Bible is so ahead of its time scientifically. It's so ahead of its time in terms of the philosophers of the day. And God said to Abraham, just as the stars are innumerable, so shall your descendants be. In fact, the descendants of Abraham and Isaac elsewhere in Scripture are analogized to dust on the earth and sand of the seashore. I mean, how much sand is there on the beaches of the world? Could you even begin to calculate how much Sand there is. How do you calculate the volume of the dust of the earth? How how do you calculate the innumerability of the stars of heaven? And God says, just as those things can't be numbered, so shall your descendants be a blessing to the seed. Now, it's interesting that when you study this word seed... The word seed is a collective singular. What does that mean? It means a word that can be singular, a noun that could be singular or plural. It's just like the word hair. Hey, I got my hair cut. Oh, which hair are you talking about? Oh, you're talking about your whole head. Okay, thanks for clarifying because you're using their collective singular. Just like the word sheep. Are we talking about a flock of sheep or this one cute, cuddly creature over here? Collective singular. That's how the word seed is. Paul picks up on the collective singular aspect of the word seed. And in the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verse 16, concerning these promises, he says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds as referring to many, but rather to one. That is Christ. In other words, from Abraham and Isaac's innumerable seed is going to come one seed. Because this is a collective singular. I can use it both ways, Paul says. And who is that one seed? It's the seed promised in Genesis 3 verse 15 at the very beginning of the book. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. In other words, right at the beginning of human history, the world is on notice that there's coming an individual seed, Jesus Christ, who will pay the sin debt for all of humanity. And so, when God says, I'm going to multiply your seed, that's only part of the promise. You're going to have children as as many as the stars of heaven, but there's going to be one in particular that will be unique, special, born of a virgin, the eternally existent second member of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, who will shed His blood for the sins of the whole human race and rise from the dead and command humanity to receive what he has done as a gift, to be made right with him. What a, what a time in history, based on where we live, in the outworking of God's purposes, that we're the recipients of these things. And you don't think you're blessed? You're, you're spectacularly blessed. Genesis 15 verse 6 of Abraham, it says, then he believed in the Lord. And he credited to him as righteousness. What did Abraham believe? I believe that Abraham believed that there's coming not just seed plural, but a seed singular. He probably connected the dots back to Genesis 3 verse 15. And he believed that promise. And the Bible says the Lord credited it to him as righteousness. Why does it use that word credit? Because it hadn't been paid for yet. Now we know about credit, don't we? Particularly this time of the year. Credit is you get goodies and payment is later. Abraham received the righteousness of God on credit... Because it would take 2,000 years for the debt to be paid. Abraham was looking forward in faith to an individual Savior whose name he did not know. And how are we saved the same way? We're just looking backward. And it has been paid for. And we do know his name. The name of that Savior, of course, is Jesus Christ. And life's most important question boils down to this. What are you going to do with that seed? Because what you do with it, accept it, reject it. Receive it, don't receive it. Believe, not believe, determines your eternal destiny. Abraham was blessed. Isaac was blessed. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings, see what God has done. What else? is As if all of this isn't enough, there's more here. Going down to verse 4, after he promises him that he would multiply his seed like the stars of heaven, I will give your descendants all these lands. I mean, your seed is going to receive lands plural, I thought Abraham and Isaac would receive land, that's true, but the land was occupied by the descendants of Canaan, who had what later would be called the land of Israel parceled up into 10 or 12 parts. God is reminding Isaac that you're going to receive all of it. The promise, no doubt, made no sense to him from the human perspective. I mean, it made no sense that he would get all of this when it was all occupied by these 10 to 12 Canaanite tribes. I guess God could have sat there and explained everything to Abraham and Isaac, here's how I'm going to pull it off, but he didn't do that. He just said, trust in my character that it will be accomplished. You don't know exactly how everything in your life is going to be pulled off. And you don't need to know. The only thing you have to know is the one making you the promise has a character that's flawless. If you trust in his character, that's all God asks. Leave the details to him. God, we know from biblical history, is pretty good at working out the details. Amen? There's actually a rabbinical comment on this verse. It reads as follows. God gave them one of the lands. When will he give them the rest in the messianic future? Because these promises have not yet been fulfilled. What what did Abraham have at the end of his life? He had a cave. The cave of Machpelah in Hebron, which he bought from the Canaanites. We saw that back in Genesis chapter 23. I mean, he had a very small, microscopic fraction of everything that God said. Well, did God lie? God can't lie. The whole basis of the coming kingdom is outlined in that promise. There has to become a time in history subsequent to the second advent, but before the eternal state called the thousand-year kingdom when these promises will become a reality. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings, see what God has done. What else is promised here? There's one more thing. And by your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. I will bless the world through you, Abraham, and now Isaac. This is something that God said to Abraham back in Genesis 12, verse 3, when he said, In you all the families of the earth will be blessed. God blessed Israel to be a blessing to the world. And is that, has that promise not been realized? Do we understand that as we worship here today, in the year 2022 and we are maxed out in terms of blessings. That we wouldn't have a single one of them had God not worked providentially through the Jewish people. Think about it. This book that we study regularly, every single writer is Jewish. There's not even a Southern Baptist author in the whole book. Jesus was Jewish, John 4.22. The coming kingdom yet future will not be headquartered in Washington, D.C. Praise God for that. Be headquartered in the nation of Israel. God has has done exactly what he said. I will bless the world through you, and Israel is the gift that keeps on giving. We only have received blessing one and blessing two. Blessing three is on the horizon. Paul explains that Israel, because of her unbelief in Romans 11, nationally has been removed from her own tree. And in the place of that removed branch came this wild branch that doesn't belong. Now, who do you think that wild branch is? That's us. That we're the. That's Sugarland Bible Church right there. That that wild branch that doesn't fit in God's tree yet we're in the tree, and we're connected to the blessings of the tree, and we have life because of the nurturing sap, etc. of the tree. And then Paul asks a question. He says, if God can bring a wild branch into a tree, which is the greater agricultural miracle, do you think it too hard of God to reach out one day and grab the branch that belongs and put it in there as well? This is why the Apostle Paul says... Concerning our attitude towards the Jewish people, do not be arrogant towards the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. Had God not providentially worked through these patriarchs, these promises that we have wouldn't exist. And that's why we look at the Jewish people today with love and affection. Uh, We may not agree with everything they do. Paul the Apostle in Romans 11 says, currently they're your enemies. Read the book of Acts, which we're studying Wednesday nights, by the way. The unbelieving Jews caused a lot of trouble for Paul. Almost every city he went into. But he says in Romans 11.28 that they are beloved on the Part or on behalf of the patriarchs. That's the proper attitude that we should have towards the Jewish people. Understanding that our blessings have come to us through God's sovereign work, through them. What a series of blessings these are. God's presence, God's blessing, land, fulfilling an oath, seed multiplication, The seed are gonna receive these lands and the nations, Isaac, are gonna be blessed through you. So why are you spending your time worrying about a stupid famine? Why are you worried about the recession, if there is one? Why are you worried about interest rates and gas prices and inflation? Why would you even, why would you even give that stuff a second thought? Don't you know what you have? Don't you know who you are? In Christ Jesus, the paragraph ends, and we'll end here with verse 5, with the basis for these commands. It's a little bit tricky. It says, Because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge. Now, you're saying, wait a minute, Pastor. You just got finished telling us that this was unconditional. And this kind of reads as if Abraham had to do something to receive these blessings. Well, when we were dealing with this kind of subject, we introduced it as an unconditional covenant, but with a conditional blessing. Charles Ryrie says this in chapter 26, verse 5, Though the covenant made with Abraham was initiated by God's unconditional grace, God delighted to acknowledge the worthiness of Abraham and also to confirm the covenant to Isaac. J. Dwight Pentecost writes, As before, God responded to the obedience of faith. He said to Abraham, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this, And have not withheld your son, your only son, I will bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand of the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you obeyed me. Here again, God promised Abraham that he would become the recipient of covenanted blessings. The covenant was not based on obedience. Nor was its perpetuity of the covenant based on obedience. But rather the reception of the covenantal blessings was conditioned on obedience. Remember, an unconditional covenant may have conditional blessings. Thus, on the basis of faith that had produced obedience, Abraham would experience the blessings and promises of the covenant. One more quick quote and I'll try to explain this. Charles Ryrie says, since the covenant had been firmly established several times before these events, it would be an incongruous to view these blessings as conditions imposed after clear statements of unconditionality. Rather, in these instances, God acknowledged the worthiness of Abraham and to remind him and his descendants that faith and obedience were necessary for participation in the benefits of the unconditional promises of the covenant. Close quote. Translation. Abraham, you're blessed. These promises are going to happen because I spoke them. Now, whether you participate in these promises or not, which are going to happen, whether you as an individual are blessed by these promises, as I've spoken them, depends on whether you obey me. The promises are going to happen. But do you want to be blessed? Then obey. It's very similar to what Jesus said to the disciples in the upper room in John 13 when he got down on his hands and knees and started to wash their feet. Can you imagine God doing that? That's what happened to the disciples in the upper room. And Jesus says there, I have set for you an example that you should do for others as I have done for you. And he says right there in John 13, verse 17, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. When Jesus says, now that you know these things, you're blessed if you do them, he was not saying to the disciples, Ha, 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 maybe you're saved, maybe you're not. We know they were saved. In fact, the only unbeliever in the group would leave the room in John 13, meaning that Jesus, for the bulk of the upper room discourse, John 13 through 17, was talking to 11 saved people whose salvation was never in doubt. The promises are going to be fulfilled. But if you want to be used in my plan to fulfill these promises, which are automatically going to happen, I'm requiring from you obedience. See, folks, here's the deal. God's work is going to get done. That's not an issue. The issue is, is he going to use you to do it? Is he going to use me to do it? Now that's on the table. That's not a salvation thing. That's a blessing thing. That's a a usability thing. And if you are going to be the type of person that God is going to use to fulfill his promises, which will happen. He requires you to obey Him. That's how it works. Obedience doesn't somehow undercut salvation or disobedience. It doesn't somehow undercut whether these promises are going to happen or not. The issue is, are you going to be blessed as God uses you to execute His plan? That's different. We're not talking about salvation anymore. What we're talking about is usability. You look at the very end of verse 5, and he says, My commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Well, wait a minute. What laws? We don't have the law of Moses yet. Well, every covenant that God makes has laws in it. Finally, Arnold Fruchtenbaum says in 26 verse 5, God declared the basis for his provisions because that Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. This showed that while Abraham was saved by grace through faith, he also had a rule of life and showed his faith by obedience to the then known laws of God. The law of Moses did not yet exist. However, the Abrahamic covenant contained a law code, just as the Edenic, Adamic, and Noahic covenants contained law codes. I mean, we have read about laws coming from God going back to Noah, even though we don't have the law of Moses yet for another, I don't know, six centuries. And what God says is James 2, verse 20, but are you willing to acknowledge, you foolish person, that faith without works is useless? He doesn't say faith without works doesn't exist. He says faith without works is useless. In other words, do you want to be used by God for eternal purposes? Then you need to obey him. At that point, your faith, which already exists, becomes useful and productive. That's why this paragraph dealing with the grace of God reminds Isaac, just as God reminded Abraham that, look, these promises are going to happen, but do you want to be the instrument of my blessing to the world as a, as a human being, as a person? Then you need to obey me. It's an unconditional covenant, but with a conditional blessing. What justifies you? Faith alone in Christ alone. But how do you grow as a Christian? You have to obey God. Under His resources and under His power. And as we embark on a new year, what a great New Year's resolution that is. You know, Lord, um, I don't want to be anymore the type of Christian that has my fire insurance paid up where I just sit, soaking sour week after week after week. I, I want you, Lord, to actually use me as your instrument to bless planet Earth. And God says, I'm delighted that you raised the subject, but here's the condition. The condition is obedience. Your justification is by grace, but your usability is conditional. And we, as the church age, we don't obey the laws associated with the Abrahamic covenant. We don't obey the laws associated with the Mosaic Covenant. What we obey is the law of Christ. You'll find the expression, the law of Christ, in Galatians 6, verse 2. Otherwise called the law of the Spirit. Romans 8, verse 2. There is a law, a a namas, a, a set of rules, principles, for the church age believer. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, lest you give Satan a foothold. Gee, so-and-so really offended me, but I'm going to make a choice this week not to seek revenge. I'm not going to let the sun go down on my anger. I'm going to forgive as I have been forgiven. Yeah, but the person that offended me is so unworthy. God says, well, what do you think you are? You're unworthy as well. But I gave you grace. Why don't you extend that grace to somebody else? All right, Lord, I don't know how I'm going to do it because I've got some real feelings of animosity towards so-and-so who'd done me a dirty, so to speak. God says, I want you to trust my resources to forgive that person. You start making that kind of decision, As you start walking in the law of Christ, you're not more saved than when you were, when you took Christ as your Savior. I mean, you're saved, that's not an issue. Now what's happening is you are becoming a usable, pliable vessel that God can use to expand His purposes on the earth. Your usability you're being a blessing factors into that. And so as we move into the new year, may we have that mindset. I'm not just going to sit, soaking sour. I'm not just going to celebrate that my fire insurance is paid up. I'm going to actually step out into the law of Christ under God's power and start to obey God and watch what God does with your life in the year 2023. By the time you hit year 2024, you'll look back and say, I can't believe what God did. And so that's our that's our exhortation. And so we took a look at the Abrahamic covenant reconfirmed today. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll get into the subject of Isaac and Abimelech. Shall we pray? Father, we're grateful for your word and your truth. We know that most likely there are many people listening to the sound of my voice, either in the building, online, or the archive after the fact that may not know you personally. And we just pray for them that today is a day of salvation, that they would trust in the Savior for salvation, that they would understand that salvation is not something we earn, it's something that we receive as a gift. And if people haven't taken that initial step into a relationship with you, we pray that many people would come under the convicting ministry of the Spirit and they would be prompted to trust in the Savior. And many people would be doing that even as I speak. We do pray for those, Father, that need more information. We pray that they would... Come and talk to myself, who's available after the service to talk. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name, and God's people said,